0: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true, that if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.
1: Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR, and the Gadigal people
0: of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard
2: at Radio Skid Row.
0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Climate Action Show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Make sure to share the show if you like what you hear. My name is Carly and my guest today is Luke Stefania. Luke Stefania is the founder and creator of Brain Planet Protein, Australia's... Luke has a background in food procurement and is passionate about sustainability. Thank you so much for joining us today, Luke. Can you please tell us a little bit about Green Planet Protein and why you decided to launch a sustainable food business?
3: Sure. I'll, um, I'll start with a statistic that drives and motivates a lot of what I do. So about 25% of, of global emissions are from food supply chains. Um, so I think there's massive scope for emissions reduction within supply chains of food. Uh, and the main types of food contributing to those uh, emissions are, are, of course, beef, uh, lamb, uh, dairy, and then other animal products such as, such as pork, farmed fish, uh, chicken and eggs. So I like to look uh, at, uh, at the emissions at the macronutrient level. So thinking about them as uh, the macronutrients we all uh, eat and need, uh, like carbohydrates, protein and fat. And when you look at it sort of through that lens, you see that um, uh, protein is where a lot of these emissions are coming from and that sustainable sources of protein um, provides enormous scope for emissions reduction. So uh, with that in mind, um, I have a long background in food and I decided to have a crack at bringing a sustainable protein to the market. Uh, That product's called Green Planet Protein and it'll launch in, in February, 2021. Um, So we're a brand new startup. Um, At at the same time as as what was going on around me, my own personal uh, journey, uh, as I learned more about climate change and and what causes it, I became more conscious of of my own actions, of course, uh, including the impact of my diet on on emissions in particular. So I started to to substitute some not-so-sustainable foods for some plant-based options. Uh, and some changes were quite easy, uh, like switching from dairy milk to, to oat milk and, and soy milk uh, and some changes were, were harder. And I think the change that I actually found hardest was that I was a big consumer of, of whey protein, which is a dairy product. Um, and finding a plant-based replacement uh, was not easy. I tried a lot of products, uh, I, I couldn't find anything that I liked, so uh, I was in need of a protein supplement more than ever. Uh, as i would taken out a number of other protein sources from my diet, couldn't find anything that I liked. I have a background in food. So I decided to make my own and it's with a view of supporting people who are trying to reduce the environmental impact of their diet. And the the product aims to to make it a very easy transition from say a dairy protein to green planet protein by providing a a superior taste, really good nutrition, uh, and performance. So I think that's where um, plant-based proteins haven't quite made it in the past.
1: One of the first questions I was thinking was that you've mentioned that there's 25% emissions from the food chain, which is a surprising amount. How much of that is from protein, do you know?
3: Uh, I, I would estimate that uh, it, it's close to half. Um, I look at it as, uh, as in those groups that I broke it into. And you see all the, all the top groups of protein sources. And then when you get way down on the list, um, you're seeing things like grains and rice and and, and items like that that are, that are contributing much less emissions, but are contributing much more food and, and, and much more calories. But I'll, I would estimate it's about half.
0: You mentioned in your um, first, and talking about sustainability and gaps in the market. I assume there was a lot of research when you were developing this product. And was there a gap for sustainable protein in the market?
3: I think so. So the, the protein powder is. Uh, dominated by whey protein, which is of course a dairy product. Um, There are many plant-based alternatives, but I think their major weakness is that they're made from imported products. Uh, So the most common plant-based protein is is pea protein, uh, which is obviously derived from peas. But the issue with pea protein is that it's manufactured in, in China, but the peas are often grown in Canada. So you're talking about growing a product in Canada, being transported to China, and then being exported to, to Australia, for instance, which is not a very efficient supply chain. So, so my product's different because it, it comes from pulses that are grown in Australia, uh, and, and the protein is isolated in Australia, so it's, it's a much leaner supply chain. On, on top of that, pulses are an amazingly efficient source of uh, protein in terms of land use, water use, greenhouse gas emissions, and amazingly about halfway through uh, the product development, this was a bit of a fluke, but I learned that uh, pulses are actually uh, a nitrogen fixing crop, which means they restore soil health. Uh, So they take nitrogen from the atmosphere and convert it to nitrogen in the soil, which helps subsequent crops. So a lot of the time, farmers plant these every three or four rotations just to help Uh, restore their soil and to boost harvests on subsequent crops uh, which reduces uh, the need for fertilizers down the track. Excessive nitrogen fertilizing uh, causes the release of nitrous oxide from soil which is one one of the most potent uh, greenhouse gases so um, we're obviously plant-based locally produced pulses contributing to soil health and then on top of that uh, we're carbon negative and we plant one tree per pack sold so I would like to think we've gone down a pretty sustainable path.
1: I'd imagine the farmers would be incredibly uh, interested in your product, given that, as you say, they're already planting these nitrogen based plants and then it's productive for them to, to sell their product as, as well as um, have that nitrogen fixing aspect.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, products that use the, this type of raw material, increase sales, increase demand for the raw material, which increases the return to the farmer, which means more farmers grow them, which means more soil gets taken care of basically. So if I can deliver a message, eat a lot of legumes, eat a lot of lentils, peas, uh, all of them are nitrogen fixing crops, so different types of beans. And yeah, they, they have this amazing benefit to, to soil health, uh, which is emerging as a, a major pillar of sustainability in recent times.
1: Did you have any trouble sourcing your product here? In uh,
3: Australia? I didn't because uh, my previous employer built the, the first factory in the Southern Hemisphere that, uh, that has this capability. So again, a little bit of luck there.
0: I'm still shocked at that convoluted food supply chain. So peas in China, then get shipped to, where did you say, sorry, the US or the UK, and then come here. It's just so...
3: It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it, Kylie? No. There's, there's, there's plenty of examples like that I'm, I'm sure I'll work in later. Uh, but, um, yeah, there's enormous scope for improvement in the, in the food supply chain. And when I quoted that 25% at the start of this discussion, that includes the transport of food.
0: Makes sense. When I was looking up Green Planet Protein, I noticed that it states that the product is not just carbon neutral, it's carbon negative. Can you please tell us the difference between the terms and why you elected to be carbon negative?
3: Uh, yeah, sure. So carbon neutral is, is when an organisation works out their carbon footprint and then offsets that exact same carbon footprint. So let's, let's say... Uh, an organisation works out that it emits one tonne of carbon per year, and then they go and purchase credits from carbon offsetting projects uh, of that equivalent amount. They bring their emissions back down to zero, uh, having a net effect of releasing no emissions into the atmosphere. So that's carbon neutral. Carbon negative is when an organisation goes beyond that neutral. So they're they're offsetting more carbon than, than they're producing in their operations. So... We offset our carbon footprint uh, by 10 times. So if we're producing one tonne of carbon, we're offsetting 10 tonnes of carbon. And the reason for that is because initially we want to offset our own activities, uh, but then we want to do something about the legacy carbon in the atmosphere, because obviously an enormous problem that we face. So it it worked for the product and um, yeah, really happy that we could go down that path.
1: How do you actually measure that?
3: So... Uh, I worked with a carbon consulting company called the Carbon Reduction Institute in Sydney. Uh, And and the engineers there basically get to know your business intimately from uh, raw materials suppliers, where they come from, where they go to, who your customers are, how they get there. So they learn everything about your product and then they do some very detailed calculations and send you about a 20-page report. And if you go to the end of that report, uh, it gives you a – a carbon per unit number. So, so per item that I sell, I know how much carbon is produced in, in supplying that good or or thousand goods It can be expressed in. So, so then you're presented with offset projects for a price, and then you choose which projects you'd like to use to achieve the uh, extent of offsetting that, uh, that you desire. So it was actually a really easy process. Uh, I learned a lot and it was really enjoyable. The, the Carbon Reduction Institute in Sydney, I think they've, they've been doing this for about 15 years, and I think they're pioneers, but they're, they're not the only ones that, that offer this. And I'd encourage other businesses to go down that path. It's, um, it's, it's pretty straightforward.
0: When you say you encourage other businesses to go down that path, Throughout this conversation, it sounds like you really appear to focus on sustainability. Is that a value of yours that you would like to see adopted by other businesses and would you like to see the market really embrace carbon neutrality or being carbon negative?
3: I'd love to see that, but I guess it comes down to, does it resonate with, with customers? Is that what customers want? If it's proven that that's what customers want, then, then businesses will go there, uh, even if they're not trying to go there for doing, for just for doing something positive. But if if that's what customers want, you know, businesses will go there just to make their customers happy. And I I think that their businesses can fill a a bit of a gap that's left with, uh, with government inactivity in this country.
1: So do you think that the market can significantly shift the climate emissions goalposts and step in where the federal government is lacking?
3: I hope so. I think they can definitely uh, contribute. I mean, I think organizations can contribute by reducing their own environmental impact. Uh, but I also think business can impact this this scenario uh, favorably uh, in a couple of ways. So uh, firstly by by adopting more sustainable practices themselves, um, educating customers uh, on the issues at hand and also putting pressure on the government. But I think I think those activities can go some way to, to filling the void left by the, uh, the inactivity by the, the current government on this uh, crisis that we face.
0: Well said. We were speaking a bit about your product being sourced in Australia, and you also speak to the importance of reducing food miles. Can you talk a bit more about why this was important to you and why you wanted to focus on the food mile reduction?
3: Food miles get a lot more attention in in other countries, in particular Europe. it's quite interesting that we don't pay much attention to it in australia given how isolated we are and any food that's imported uh travels a a hell of a long way so the reason why i like to focus on on food miles is because reducing food miles can decrease the environmental impact of our food without actually changing what we eat at all or before we change what we eat at all so i consider it. I consider it low hanging fruit. It's an easy way to achieve what we want to achieve without having to sacrifice anything. So I've, I've, I've got an example from yesterday. I was in Woolworths in the cereal aisle doing my weekly shop and, and a couple of half price tickets caught my eye as they usually do. And, and I walked my way over, picked up a couple of boxes, and I saw that this cereal was produced in the UK. Um, I, I know that from my background in food, I know that most of those ingredients, if not all, aren't produced in the UK. So you've got foods, let's say grown in Asia and Europe uh, and the Middle East that are being sent to the UK, packaged and then exported to Australia. Uh, and that's that's another example of incredible inefficiency. We have you know, dozens of businesses that can do that in Australia. I'm not quite sure how that even works um, economically, but it certainly doesn't work environmentally. I, I came across another example yesterday where I was looking for some black beans uh, I, I picked up several cans and they were all packaged in Italy. And one even said packaged in Italy from, from beans uh, grown in the US. So again, uh, we can grow black beans here. We can can them here. But you've got black beans being grown in the US, traveling all the way to Italy and then making their, uh, making their way down here to Australia. So there's a lot of nonsensical things happening in food supply chains and a lot of room for improvement. And one thing we can do at an individual level is to, is to pick up those cans or those boxes and look for the Australian grown options because fortunately uh, there is Australian grown options most of the time. And and this um, this becomes even more important with fresh food. So so fresh food that might have to travel here in a refrigerated shipping container is obviously a lot more resource intensive and some foods even air freighted here. Uh, so, so Buy Australian where you can is uh, one message I'd like to send out to the audience.
1: There's quite a bit of talk at the moment about Europe, America and even China introducing a carbon border tax. Are you aware aware of that?
3: Uh, I've heard a little bit about it, but yeah, I I think that's a great idea if if it is what I think it is. Uh, Some of the international trade that occurs doesn't make any sense at all environmentally. Uh, and if and if uh, intervention can be taken to prevent some of that inefficient trade um, then i'm all for it
1: would that affect your business at all
3: uh, no um, i'm only planning on selling in australia um, so i'm not sending anything overseas
1: I actually yeah a question that was a, a bad question i think what i meant was would that potentially assist your business does do the carbon miles come into a play here, or
3: I think if if Australia put something um, like that in place that made imported products more expensive, then that would would certainly uh, that would certainly help all local products, including my own. So I'm all for that type of intervention. I think it's really really positive, not just for my own self interest.
4: Texas sun, caressing you from Fort Worth to Amarillo. Well, come on, roll with me for the sun dips low. Texas sun, Texas sun, oh girl. This song Oh baby, you're so gorgeous. How about you and me, take a little trip. dig big body. Take a ride with me, babe. You by my side. How does it sound? You and I. you
0: You also highlight on your website. The land and water scarcity issue that contemporary food production is experiencing. How efficiently do you think we are currently using our resources to feed a growing population, whose landscape is changing rapidly due to the climate crisis?
3: Well, I'm going to to start to sound like a bit of a a whinger here, but uh, incredibly inefficiently is is the way our global uh, food supply chains operate, and um, the main reason is that uh, in the Western world we rely so heavily on animal-based protein, Uh, animals are actually inefficient converters of food, so no offense to any animals that are listening, but uh, farm animals consume a hell of a lot more um, food than they produce. Uh, So a good way to look at this is by considering feed conversion ratios, Uh, and and ratios like this tell us that a cow consumes about eight times food that it produces, a a pig consumes about four times, and a chicken consumes about, about double. So. An egg is a, is a good example. So, an egg is about 75 calories. But to produce that egg, a chicken needs to eat double those calories. So, again, people are probably visualizing a cow in a paddock just minding its own business eating grass. But that's in reality, that's not how it works. Cows are often eating soy and corn that people could be eating. Uh, and that soy and corn is often grown on land that's been deforested. I mean, at an, at an individual level, eating as much plant-based protein as you can it is, is the way to go if you want to reduce your environmental impact.
1: And what about the water they consume?
3: Yeah, I'm not even taking that into account. I, I don't have any numbers there, but you you make a great point. Uh, I, I'm sure that's uh, extremely similar. In a country like ours where water is scarce, um, yeah, it's definitely something to keep in mind.
0: Can you talk to us a little about the carbon offset projects that you've elected for Green Planet Protein. Why did you pick them and why were they important to you?
3: The first project we contribute to um, is uh, investment in solar energy in Mauritius. Uh, So this this project obviously uh, reduces Mauritius's need for burning of fossil fuels to generate their energy and obviously helps the people of Mauritius. Um, The second project is a project that purchases um, cook stoves and water filtration devices for, for disadvantaged people in Guatemala. So deforestation for wood to then burn to boil water and and to, um, and to cook food is a significant issue in Guatemala. and by providing these cook stoves and these water filtration devices, we eliminate the need uh, for that to occur. And hopefully enrich these people's lives um, as, as they don't have to, you know, go to all the trouble of, of boiling water to make it drinkable. So um, I, I pick these because I, I think they're a good mix of environment and, uh, and between helping people as well. Uh, it's, it's quite rewarding and I hope our customers feel the same way.
0: Do you know why the Carbon Reduction Institute had those particular projects to be available? Did they kind of give you any ideas about
3: that? Uh, no, I, I think it's at a higher level than them. So these, these projects uh, operate sort of on an international level and they're just the ones that they pick to put forward to their customers. There were quite a number. I think there was about eight. Um, I recall uh, some type of wind energy project in China. There was some type of biomass project in India, but uh, these ones really spoke to me. I think just because they were smaller, smaller countries, I, I, I felt like they uh, were very worthy recipients of, of our assistance.
0: You also have a project that plants, and I think you said that plants one tree pack per unit sold. Now, there's been significant scrutiny over projects like these with large corporations or organisations abusing these projects in order to, to simply continue increasing their greenhouse gas emissions or do nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, can you please talk to me about this greenwashing, if that's of any interest to you?
3: Yeah, this, uh, this type of greenwashing is the, the bane of my existence. It, um, it, it's, it's really terrible because it, it, it can damage people's perceptions of, of, of genuine, uh, well-intentioned efforts. So fortunately, I think that type of greenwashing is pretty easy to pick. Like if it's, a, um, if it's an oil company or a, a coal-fired uh, energy company saying, you know, look at us, we put some trees in the ground, it's all good. Uh, I think that's pretty easy to see through. So I think people can, can discern pretty well and, and work out that that's, uh, you know, not that well intentioned or impactful, but the organization that we work with is called One Tree Planted. Um, so they're a, a very reputable not-for-profit that's been in operation for about 10 years. Last year, they put over 4 million trees in the ground. Um, they work uh, in a number of different parts of the world, uh, including a, a big project in Australia in northern New South Wales and this is the one that we contribute to so uh, one tree per pack of our product sold gets planted in this area in northern new south wales that was damaged badly by the bushfires a couple of years ago uh, and this particular area uh, that they're reforesting is, is actually linking up to important areas of koala habitat so once i heard that i was i was fully on board and the, probably the best thing about these guys is that um, there's ongoing monitoring and maintenance of the trees they're planting and they're planting uh, a diverse uh, number and and amount of of trees. Um, They're they're replanting the trees that were originally there to restore biodiversity, uh, not just picking the the, the cheapest tree possible and planting it in some random paddock. So you should check them out. One Tree Planted, very good organisation.
0: I was actually going to ask about the diversity of trees, so thank you for anticipating that. I think there is um, some research I was reading where there's a lot of tree planting projects that only plant one species of tree and ones that aren't necessarily native to the area, which, you know, I guess it's that whole balancing of harm. It's good that a tree is planted, but is it actually helping biodiversity in the area? So that's fantastic.
3: If it it doesn't survive and if it doesn't grow, then it's achieving nothing. So... I mean, if we see these types of uh, initiatives, I think it's it's a good idea to ask. We always state that we're planting in Australia, uh, and on our socials, uh, we we will link one tree planted so people can see more about uh, more more about the project down the track. But but sometimes I see products that are making pretty pretty big claims in terms of number of trees, and if you're working with a reputable uh, organization is actually quite expensive. So if I see 10 trees planted for, for a product that costs 50 bucks, it makes me wonder uh, where they're getting planted uh, and how effective that program is. But I guess just ask follow-up questions and, and what organization is being used. I, I, I think that's that's the way to go.
0: On your website, there are some blogs that you write that champion ethical companies or services. Why did you choose to put these on your social media and why did you choose to highlight them?
3: I think that um, one way that we can create a positive impact in regards to sustainability is um, by raising awareness of uh, the many wonderful sustainable options that we're lucky enough to have in Australia. So, you know, we've got options for, for, for green banking, sustainable superannuation, uh, renewable energy, we've even got carbon neutral broadband. And I just want to um, inform a lot of people as many people as possible about these options because if they don't know they exist then then how can they change the second part of that is i I think making those changes from normal corporations to more sustainable ones sends a really really powerful message to industry uh, and it's something we can all do as individuals uh, because when when industry starts to lose customers for unsustainable practice that's, that's a message they understand when it starts to cost them dollars. So uh, let's say, for instance, you're going to leave uh, a big four bank for Bank Australia, make sure on the way out that you communicate that the reason you're leaving is, is for a more sustainable organization uh, because it doesn't take many customers to, to get that message traveling right up to, to the top level of those companies. Um, and it's, uh, it's good therapy for, for when you're feeling helpless in the, in the battle against climate change. So we try and uh, try and help out with that information.
0: Absolutely. We were talking about food industry before, and I just wanted to ask: what opportunities for climate action do you think could be adopted by the food industry on a larger level?
3: I think promotion of plant-based protein is is, is the best way. The most impactful way I think uh, raising awareness on food miles and an emphasis on buying locally uh, is really important. Uh, and just education of, of customers. Ultimately, I'd like to see uh, some type of metric uh, displayed on food that that uh, quantifies the environmental impact of that food. So I'm thinking, uh, you know, the health star rating that you see on on most packaging these days. Uh, like an environmental star rating. I think that'd be really great if if, if a rating system was implemented that, that took into account you know, food miles, greenhouse gas emissions, packaging, water use, land use. I, th- I think that'd be great and it, it would be really informative to customers and make it easy. But so often that information's hidden from us. So hopefully something like that can, can come out in the future.
1: Normally a, a an industry group that lobbies for something like that. And that's and, and a, a wonderful thing to do, but it is companies like yours that have to be part of that push.
3: Yeah, that's something I'll look to uh, get involved with down the track, absolutely. I'm trying to think of the types of companies that would want to get on board uh, so that obviously be, be, you know, be no meat and dairy companies, uh, which rules out a, a lot of businesses. But I think anyone involved in, in grain in Australia particularly with these pulses that we talk about or um, legumes and and, and things like that. I I think that would uh, appeal to them, cereals. And then your sort of cutting edge, uh, you know, V2 Foods, sort of mock meat type manufacturers. I think that's something that that they might be interested in. Certainly, sounds like it.
0: Mm. Where to next for Green Planet Protein? You know, are there other projects that you would like to partner with or... You know other opportunities for influencing carbon neutrality.
3: So I think we'd like to to branch into other products, and anytime we go into another product, that we, we we would have the objective of of becoming the most sustainable player in that category, uh, and, and we'd want to be um, presenting a more sustainable option um, to the customers of that category. So I, I think anything we do will involve the promotion of plant-based protein. I can't stress enough. This is a plant-based product. It's a vegan product, but it's not exclusively for vegans or plant-based people. Um, Anyone who's interested in reducing the environmental impact of their diet is really who we want to reach. So every time we pick a plant-based option over an animal-based one, we're doing something good for the environment, basically. That's, That's the way I look at it. If we tell people they have to become vegans to to solve our, our our issue that we face, I, I think a lot of people are going to put that in the in the too hard basket uh, or bury their head in the sand. Uh, but but if we can inform people, educate people, uh, put forward products that are sustainable uh, but are an easy change from traditional products, I think that that puts us in good stead uh, in, in the um, in the fight against climate change. I mean, I, I read an article not long ago uh, in the Economist. Um, and, and obviously we all know that an entirely vegan diet is, is, is the best or the gold standard, uh, environmentally. Uh, but this, this article, uh, this study that was published in the economist showed that a two thirds flexitarian diet. So, so having vegan meals for, uh, two thirds of your breakfast, two thirds of your lunch and two thirds of your dinners, uh, can reduce the environmental impact. Of a Western diet by a massive 60%, so that's huge. We're talking about 60% of 25% of total emissions, so that's 15% of total emissions. So, I mean, I I think I just encourage people to eat plant-based as much as possible. You don't necessarily have to restrict yourself to only that. Um, I mean, it's great if you can, but the more plants we eat, the better. Basically, I never thought I'd hear myself saying that: the more plants, the better.
0: Oh really? So, what was your personal? How long have you eaten like this for? What was
3: your a, story? I'm from a traditional European background, and um, yeah, vegetables uh, and and plants were uh, not 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 a very highly consumed product in my upbringing, and and only in the past sort of five years, for climate reasons, uh, have I made that uh, have, I, have I made that shift.
1: That's a pretty big shift to make, and to get to that understanding.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and hopefully more people can uh, can do it with our help.
1: Well, it's a wonderful, wonderful startup initiative that you've got, and we wish you all the best with it because it certainly helps in so many ways. And and I hope a lot of people can get on board and and see new products on your website. You really appreciate it. that. Is there anything at all that we haven't covered that you might wish to highlight?
3: I don't think so. I think if anyone's interested in our products or learning more about um, our business, uh, our website's greenplanetprotein.com.au. That's the best place to find the product. And um, yeah, if you're interested, give us a a, a like and follow on Instagram at at Protein.
1: Terrific. Beautiful. Thanks for your time, Luke.
3: Thank you both very much. It's been great talking Mm. to you. Good luck Thank you.
0: That was Luke Stevanya from Green Planet Protein. More information about Green Planet Protein can be found on their website, greenplanetprotein.com.au, and on their Instagram, at greenplanetprotein. Stay tuned on VCR for more discussions about the climate emergency. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Our next guests are Siobhan Nayland and Claudia Lang from the local Stoppadani Morland Group who have just come back from Queensland blockading the Stop Adani project. Thank you we'll hear so much more for joining from them about how, how are you today? Pretty good.
5: A bit cold. Yeah,
0: good. <laughs> so I've been really curious to hear how blockading was at the Queensland camp. Can you tell me a bit about your experience?
2: It was really eye-opening. I think um, both of us. Well, no, born had been up a couple of times before, but I'd primarily been involved in the campaign um, down in Melbourne. So um, it was really helpful, I think, to get a context of both the local landscape and the country there um, and also the social context um, that the mine's operating in. Um, you know, um, mining has been deeply entrenched Um in these communities in central Queensland for a long time generations and yeah it was both I think uh, somewhat overwhelming but also um, just gave me uh, I guess yeah really good context on, on why this project is where it is and, and why it's um, going ahead um, and in terms of, like, you know, um, job availability in the region and also just the identity with coal mining that these towns and communities have. Um, and, and then I guess there was the other aspect of, um, of the blockade that was really, like, it was just really incredible to see how committed um, people are to stopping this mine as well.
5: Yeah, so um, it wasn't my first time at camp but it's it's interesting every time you go back It's it's there's a different um, combination of people there and a bit of a different vibe and I, I always find it useful to go and um, kind of reconnect with the campaign and the people that are like so committed that they're there all the time or they're there for a long time um, to reconnect with, with the country up there and, um, and, yeah, to just get a real um, visceral sense of what's happening that you, I, I don't feel like you can get without going there. Um, and, yeah, as Claudia said, like, it's, there's, there's, it's complex. There's a lot of tension and you really feel that when you go. Um, you kind of walk into this high-tension environment um, where, yeah, there's just, like, a lot of... Um, High emotions about being pro mining or anti mining or anti Adani pro Adani whatever, um, and that can be really like a weird a weird kind of energy to walk into. But um, I think that we're all pretty committed to um, committed to the cause. And as always, I just really enjoyed um, that kind of groundedness of doing actions that are embodied and, and putting your body sort of in the way of of the thing um just feels really empowering um and it was really nice to do that with um some comrades from melbourne um and yeah it was it was uh yeah i'm really glad i'm really glad that we got the chance to do that together um
0: yeah huge stuff i imagine it would be quite surreal because i guess the um the chickens are coming home to roost in the terms of the federal government you know, doing the bare minimum to transition these communities and these, you know, historical mining communities so that they feel like they have a secure future. So it would be, when you talk about the tension, I can imagine feeling that quite viscerally in the community when you're going up there to oppose this really serious project. Mm, mm,
5: Totally. And just something as simple as, like, you know, on our van we had a Stop Adani sticker and suddenly I just felt like went once we were around that kind of area where camp is, you know, I felt just really self-conscious and, you know, I, I don't want to, I, I understand the complexity and I understand the, um, yeah, the the huge tensions around jobs and the economy and people feeling, um, yeah, that, that anxiety um, and, yeah, to feel like you're coming in from outside and yeah I don't know I don't have the answers (laughs) it's really complex
0: yeah it is and I guess it's just them feeling left behind because they are being left behind with an action from the government but yeah we can't also just do nothing yeah so Um, I realize oh sorry go Claudia I was
2: just gonna say I think it's frustrating as well because as Siobhan was saying there's that sense of like self-consciousness um being in those areas because you are likely to receive um, um, like to be to be a personal target for their frustrations around the local economy when um, the media has done a very good job of shifting attention away from the role of government um, to look after these communities and to um, provide alternatives that are going to look after us well into the future Um, and instead it's been turned on into like a personal attack on environmentalists um so i think there's just there's a lot of work to be done there around um um understanding actually who's responsible for what um and and um and holding our government to account for not providing um alternatives and for not providing um support through what's going to be a very bumpy time
0: Absolutely.
5: And um, something that I always come back to when I do any sort of um, non-violent direct action is this, I think it's a Martin Luther King quote, which is um, uh, civil disobedience doesn't create tension, it merely brings tension to the surface. And, you know, so this tension is there and the presence of Doppadani activists obviously brings it to a head in some ways but like the tension would be there anyway like the tension between um you know the interests of traditional owners versus the interests of Adani or the interests of you know um coal miners in Queensland now versus you know um reef uh tourism operators when the reef gets destroyed from global warming like these tensions are everywhere and um they are created by yeah mismanagement by government by corporate greed by all these um other sort of sort of more hidden forces and and yeah I I try to come back to that because you know otherwise I'll feel like I'm somehow the antagonist or I'm I'm doing something wrong by creating this tension but I'm not creating the tension
0: yeah that's a really good point and a really good quote um so i recognize that you know covid has disrupted so many things and obviously it's disrupted frontline action and the amount of people that can be anywhere at any given time and through that corporations have taken advantage adani is no different and there's been significant works that have been happening up on the site is that right
2: yeah so when we were there um just a few weeks ago we came to understand just how far adani is progressing with the project you know they've They've hit their first coal. Um, they're not ready to export it um, because they don't have the rail infrastructure quite there yet, but they're getting there and they're um, getting there pretty fast. Um, our understanding is that um, that they would have the rail line completed um, and the carriages um, on site ready to, to be exporting um, later this year, sort of in the... the last quarter of this year um and you know without people being able to travel up um or to even have even having um limited numbers that can be at um at the camp um protesting um participating in direct action has meant that they've been able to take advantage of that space really um and and roll on ahead so and and you know, COVID continues to affect frontline actions. It wasn't just last year. Um, so yeah, that was a really quite a bit of a blow um, to see how, just how far they progressed. Um, but you know, there there are other aspects of the campaign that um, that that do have the capacity to to continue to make this project smaller or um, less impactful um, around, and that's particularly around like the funding of the project. Um, So Adani has, um, there's like the uh, sort of an Adani group. There's the the part that's um, taking care of the the coal mine, but then there's, Adani has investors in...
0: um, Dismantle?
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so I guess like this mine is one um, of um, many operations um, uh, the company's engaged in across the world. Um, And so one thing that the campaign is looking at now is how can we um, impact the funding uh, across the company um, generally to influence um, Adani's uh, Carmichael mine um, operations and plans. So that looks like um, uh, reaching out to investors, um, applying some of our um, corporate campaigning um, skills, particularly online that we really worked on last year, Um, reaching out to those companies that are invested in other parts of Adani um, and encouraging them to not make any further investments. Um, And this will have a big impact on Adani's ability to finance the Carmichael mine
0: really interesting information. And I think um, a lot of people, you know, I certainly learned fairly recently just how important finance was to these big climate-wrecking projects. So that's really cool that if you can't necessarily go up to Queensland, there are other ways you can try and stop this project moving ahead. So just I sport, guess... like,
5: a little bit of... Sorry, I could just quickly for, for a bit of context. Like, um, just in case people aren't aware, like, the Stop Adani uh, sort of online campaigning component or you know it was, it's been mostly online the last year or two um has just had amazing success and so you know now the target is on investors but for most of last year the target the the main focus was um insurance and the camp the Stop adani campaign pretty much successfully got um all insurance possible insurers to rule out fun- um insuring adani and now adani is self-insuring So, you know, I think that it's worth just reflecting on how effective these tactics are and they are tactics that continue unabated in, you know, lockdown after lockdown. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. And um, when especially when we can't get up to camp so easily, it's just good to have this other option that keeps on keeping on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's many ways that we can try and still store the project. So how could people get involved and how can people get involved if they're interested in joining the Stop Adani campaign while it's still really important?
2: If you're based in Melbourne, head to um, the Stop Adani Melbourne Facebook page, which is where we share events. Um, We're running something called an action hour, Um, basically an hour where we get together on Zoom and um, make calls, um, emails, um, send tweets, um, contact staff on LinkedIn, all sorts of different things um, together. Um, and we've got one coming up. So if you head to the Stoppadani Melbourne um, Facebook page, you'll find more info um, and the Zoom link to join there. Um, otherwise, you can head to, um, there's an events page on the Stoppadani website. And that page is www.stopadani.com dot um, com forward slash events so there you'll find a directory of all the different events um, happening around australia or you can even start your own and that um, the stopadani website um again www.stopadani.com has lots of resources for running your own event but yeah that's what i'd suggest at this point in time if while we're in lockdown um and um
5: I guess if you are in any kind of position to um, look at heading up to camp, um, you can look at uh, the Frontline Action on Coal website. So they are the group that kind of coordinates the camp and all the frontline action that happens up there. So that's frontlineaction.org and there's a sign-up sheet there and heaps of information about, um, you know, what the deal is with that Obviously, it's difficult for for a lot of people to get up there at the moment, but, yeah, even if it's just something you want to look into, then that's where you can find out more about that, frontlineaction.org.
0: Brilliant. Is there anything else that either of you would like to add or say about the project or about the groups?
2: I guess I'd just like to say, you know, like it comes up a lot that people think that the campaign's over or that it's gone too far um, and, and, you know, like they are digging up coal, this project is happening, but the size of the project has reduced, um, by almost like 80%, I think it is since, um, it was first proposed, um, as Siobhan mentioned, Danny's having to self-insure, they're having to provide, um, other contracts. Um, internally because they've struggled to find contractors. And this campaign is very much still relevant um, and we can still influence the amount of destruction that happens or um, how long it's operational for um, if we continue to take action. So, yeah, just really encourage people to still get involved because it's really not over. Um, and um, what we do in the next couple of years will have a huge impact on, the, on how, just
5: how destructive this project is. And I would just sort of add to that that, um, you know, a lot of the campaigning, especially now with, um, well, yeah, I mean all the corporate campaigning really is like forcing companies to consider um, their involvement not just with Adani but with coal and fossil fuels more generally and so like a lot of this work has flow-on effects. It's not just, you know, it's primarily about Adani but, um, you know, this work can still have... Uh, yeah, positive effects on um, forcing many big businesses and companies to, um, yeah, to put out policies that are um, more environmentally conscious and responsible um, and that divest from fossil fuel projects.
0: Absolutely. So people, power, works and we need everyone on board. Mm, Yep. Thank you so much, Siobhan and Claudia. It's been lovely hearing from you. So everyone, please get involved with Stop Adani if you have capacity to.
2: Thanks, Callie.
0: And now some climate updates. So our climate is changing with devastating consequences now and in the immediate future. Warmer waters are pushing South Australia's sharks and rays southwards and changing habitats, exacerbating threats to critically endangered species. The Amazon Basin, one of the planet's largest stores of carbon, is beginning to release more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than it absorbs as deforestation and fires spread. More than 8 billion people could be at risk of malaria and dengue fever by 2080 if greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise unabated, a new study has found. The searing heatwave in Western Canada and the US at the end of last month was virtually impossible without climate change, say scientists. Solutions are available and affordable. Many are being rolled out around the world. Right here, the world's largest renewable energy hub has been proposed along the south coast of Western Australia. It is in partnership with local traditional owners, would create local jobs and boost Australia's energy production. The New South Wales government is offering $50 million in grants to secure 3 gigawatts of pumped hydro to replace coal. The top American diplomat in Australia has declared both countries need to set more ambitious climate goals and tackle the climate crisis head on as international pressure mounts on the Morrison government to act. The Australian energy market operator is equipping itself to handle 100% of instantaneous renewable energy generation by 2025, showing that it's possible. But people with the power to make the changes we need aren't acting fast enough, and some people are actively holding us back. Federal Environment Minister Susan Lay will appeal the federal court order saying that she has a duty of care to protect young people from the impacts of greenhouse gas emissions. So you heard me right. She is going to argue that the government do not have a duty of care to protect young Australians. The Morrison government has rejected a call from the Marshall Islands to phase out coal power It is one of 55 human rights-related recommendations that was rejected ahead of a UN session focusing on Australia's human rights records. Federal Energy and Emissions Reduction Minister Angus Taylor has appointed another former fossil fuel executive to a key government clean energy body, the Clean Energy Regulator. The Federal Liberal Party has launched an extraordinary new anti-EV campaign as the federal election looms. All over the world people from all walks of life are building a movement for the changes that we do need desperately. A group of Torres Strait Islanders are waging a first of its kind legal battle to preserve their right to culture and land and to force the Australian government to act on climate change. A decision on a proposed coal mine in New South Wales Southern Highlands decision is imminent, and local wine growers and farmers have stood up to voice their concerns. More than 60 of the 80 people who addressed the Independent Planning Commission expressed opposition to the mine. Two Liberal MPs are urging Scott Morrison to set 2050 net zero targets before the UN Climate Conference, saying it was not only the right thing to do, but would create opportunities for Australia. Six climate activists and two environmental NGOs have taken Norway to Human Rights Court, arguing that plans to drill for oil in the Arctic are harming young people's future. It is a race against time, though. We need everyone. Here's what you can do to join them. We need you to stand up. So independent MP Zali Stegall's climate change bill is being reintroduced to Parliament in a few weeks. Email your federal MP and ask them to push for a debate and vote on the bill, and keep emailing them about it. Reach out. Reach out to everyone you know. Reach out to people that you don't know. Talk about it on social media. And get informed. Attend workshops. Listen to podcasts. Listen to scientists. Listen to climate scientists. And i leave you with a quote. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? Hillel the Elder, 1st century AD. These quick updates were provided on behalf of the team at Climate for Change. Make sure to look at them on social media if you're interested so in getting involved. So thank you so involved. much for your time today, Claudia and Siobhan. We've been speaking to Claudia, Lang, Siobhan, Nayland and Luke Stevanya. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.